You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Amen. How are we doing? So good. Love that. Um, yeah, just a quick word. I want to piggyback off of uh, kids on the Sunday, especially with the women's retreat. So um, I started out in kids' ministry, and um, you learn a lot. You learn a lot from teaching, and it's super good to be in there. But there's, it's not a commandment, but a word, like a, a, um, a wisdom proverb, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. We want to take that wisdom seriously. Um, and then 10 years later, I'm uh, preaching in front of adults. So if you want to preach someday, go work in kids. Um, and it's less terrifying. Actually, I think it's more terrifying in kids. They're a harder crowd. Um, but yeah, I just really want to uh, ask fellas, let's step up into that. So Jesse told me this last week, there's 37 kids volunteers. You want to guess how many are guys? <laughs> two. It's a little better than two. Seven. Seven are guys. So just think about that with how many kids we have here at the church. And so it's not a bad thing. We love our women. We have many godly women raising our kids, but it's an imbalance in our church. And so it's a good thing for us to be able to step into that. So um, let's just, let's step up into that. Okay. And it's not just, not just one time. It'd be great if it was all the time, but I just want to give a plea to that. I have a deep passion for kids ministry. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a good thing. Um, but uh, talk to one of us about that. But let's get into it today. So Matthew, you guys been enjoying Matthew series? It's been fun. Um, how many of you got one of those little journals? A lot, oh, thousands of you. It's so good. Um, yeah, if, if you didn't get one, um, we could get you one. Um, but we, uh, we just, we are so passionate about the scriptures and so passionate about studying it and writing it and just putting out your own thoughts and really engaging with it. Um, so we ask you not just to hear sermons on a Sunday or think, oh, interesting, but to really dive into this um, on your own time in the week and stuff. But so far, um, we've been a couple weeks in and we're just barely into chapter two, uh, which is really fun. You can kind of project there are 28 chapters of Matthew. So Seven years from now, we'll probably be done. Um, but in for today, this is the purpose for today. Matthew has been writing, and one of the things Matthew has been trying to get his hearers at the time and the readers who could read to understand is he's trying to go out and prove that that Jesus that died on the cross, what was buried, then rose again to new life, that that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for. And to do this today, in our passage today, I believe that Matthew is trying to prove that with another layer of trying to show that because he is the face of the new Israel. He is the face of being the new Israel. So, so far in the first two chapters, we've seen the importance of Matthew setting up Jesus, fulfilling these puzzle pieces that have to fit together for Jesus to truly fulfill what the law and the prophets have been talking about. But there's also these great theological implications in these first few stories in Matthew with the hearers and readers that are in his time. So we talk a lot about this in our discipleship cohort course that we do from January to June. So it's coming up here. So if you have not done that, it'd be awesome for you to sign up for it. 
But we talk, in one of our courses, we talk about the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology. So systematic, real quick, is more like answering the question some of us get where it's like, hey, what does the Bible say about whatever? And so you systematically find all the verses or passages about that topic in context, and then you have an educated summary of what the Bible says about it. Okay, that's like systematic theology. Biblical theology is more about answering the question, okay, I get that, but how does that fit into God's great arcing story of redemption? What is the big picture? What's the 30,000 foot view big picture that we're talking about? So that takes a stepping out. That takes kind of a looking at it as a whole. Today's story and the text we're going to talk about, just to give you a heads up, is much more of a biblical theology approach. Matthew's using language. He's bringing up these hyperlinks, these stories that tell us a bigger thing is happening than just what is happening. So today we're going to talk about one of the first things he brings up is a very retelling of the story starting with Israel in Egypt. So if I just say Israel in Egypt, what just kind of comes up, if we had a whiteboard and you could throw up there, what comes to mind when I say Egypt? Slavery. Okay, what else? Moses, plagues. What did you say? Oh, Passover. <laughs> I just couldn't hear you. Passover, frogs, uh, all sorts of stuff, right? Exodus, all those things, right? In that story, we kind of know it. Whether you've grown up in church or maybe you hadn't even grown up in church, it's kind of familiar, right? Moses and the ten plagues and slavery and all this kind of stuff, right? There was this great redemption in the story we read in our Bibles in Exodus, literally meaning like out of, like they got out of Egypt. That's what it meant. God freeing his people, bringing them up out of Egypt, but Egypt still kind of always on a biblical theology level, always kind of represented this archetype of kingdom of darkness in our Bibles. Right? Babylon is another one. Even Rome could be considered another kingdom of darkness. These are other names with that kind of same motif. And it's the motif of a great worldly power that has everything and preaches to you that you should have everything or submit to its power. Which means that often its leaders are feel fearful of losing everything. Everything and everyone is a threat to their power, and out of fear, they will do what they think is just to keep what they think they have. And remember, Matthew's writing about the birth of the Christ, the true Messiah and the King of God's people in a time when there was a man in the same town who appointed himself king over the Jews as Herod the Great. Okay, a time when the Emperor Caesar, Augustus himself, was claimed to be the Son of God. This is a dangerous time to be writing about a new king and a new Son of God. But despite all of that, we saw last week, as Gabe walked us through, that the wise men from other nations came to the temple, offended Herod by not even considering him to be the king, but searching for this baby instead in a manger guided by a star of David. And before they departed, we're told of this line by Herod himself to the wise men. This is Matthew 2, 8. Herod says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Should we trust Herod? <laughs> right. The wise men, they departed. They visited the child King Jesus. They leave their gifts. They offer their worship, and then they leave. 
And let's begin by looking at the last verse of last week's sermon, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, meaning the wise men and their company, departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men were also visited in a dream, like Joseph, and warned that Herod's intentions were evil, and they were not only to not reveal where King Jesus was born, but to also sneak away a different way home. So let's get into our passage today, verse 13. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Okay, probably reeling a bit from being visited by such a great host of impressive people with the wise men. They've been given gifts, seeing these leaders in their own rights bow down to their baby Jesus. Joseph and Mary are probably a little bit thrown, and then Joseph is visited by an angel, is now told to urgently take everyone and flee to Egypt and remain there until it is safe once more. Now, in Jesus' time, Egypt is very different than the Exodus Egypt from a long time ago. Okay, in the time of Jesus' birth, Egypt was actually not an unfriendly place for Jewish people. Egypt was actually governed by Rome, had its own ruler over the area, and it was approximated about a million Jews lived there at the time. Herod, although a Roman-appointed leader of Judea, had no jurisdiction in Egypt. So unless he had a legitimate national crisis and emergency, and not just personal prejudice and jealousy, his words would have no effect on some baby traveling considered better than himself. So Joseph obeys here, verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. I want to talk about that phrase real quick. Out of Egypt I called my son. As Matthew has been doing a ton so far in this gospel, he throws in these Old Testament quotes. That's kind of cluing us into what is happening on the bigger picture. We like to call these hyperlinks. If you, if you saw it on a docu- Word document or something, you could click on it. It would take you to what's happening elsewhere. So this hyperlink quote is from the prophet Hosea, who spends much of his writings chastising Israel for being adulterous against their God and how they'll be punished by a God, but a God who loves them and will never leave them. But then there's this one chapter, chapter 11 in Hosea, where God, through Hosea, speaks of redemption. That one day, even though there'll be hardship, one day, what God has for his son will have meaning. His people, represented by the nation of Israel, redeemed and once again restored to the former blessing of being sons of God that God has for them. Out of Egypt will always have this greater meaning of freedom from anything that enslaves God's people away from him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In the Exodus story, we're going to jump around a little bit today. In the Exodus story, when Moses had grown up, God used him to free his people to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh. When Moses finally agrees to do what God asked him to do, the Lord gave him this charge. This is Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So son here to God means an entire nation. Son has always meant God's people. He treats them like his own children. So back to Matthew. For him to use the Hosea 11 quote here is to say, in Jesus, not only would there somehow finally be a freedom from the corruption of the world, but also a reestablishment of God's children and the turning of the nation towards God and his promises once again. And this is fascinating because on a biblical theology level, remember big picture, 30,000 foot view, Matthew is painting Jesus as the new face of a nation. Not only the true king of the Jews, but the very emblem of the new Israel. The one who came from such a genealogy as we looked at a few weeks ago, and now has a thematically similar story to that of the old story of Israel in Egypt. But in order for Jesus to have the same story of Israel, some major things would have to happen. There would have to be kind of this great Exodus-like narrative, right? Then there would have to be like a passing through waters, and then a wandering in the desert, and then a giving of the law on a mountain, right? And if you look, if you open your Bible, and you look at some of the titles in chapters 1 through 7, you will start to see this arc that is happening in Jesus' life that Matthew will walk us through. And I will make a graphic so that you can look at it next week, but I forgot this week, so apologies. But you can start seeing Matthew is starting to build this scope that like, yes, it's very real and happening, but thematically, biblical theology, something is happening here. A, restore, a restoration, a true restoration is happening here. So today we're going to see kind of the first part of how Jesus starts out with this Exodus-like narrative. So quick background to catch us up to speed on the gravity of what happens with Jesus and Matthew here. Are you guys with me? All right, there's coffee if you, if you need it. In Genesis, there was once a small family who fled to Egypt because of a drought and famine. And there was a man in Egypt named Joseph, you might be knowing this story, right, who was their brother. He was given a dream to save grain in storehouses for when the time came to save and preserve the people, okay? That small family's sons became the 12 nations of Israel, and Egypt was a place of saving grace for the nation. You can go read this near the end of Genesis, starting in chapter 41. But guess what happened right after all of that? Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay, we're talking Egypt. Okay, the Israelites were flourishing in the land of Egypt. Now, I want to read for you. It's about 15 verses. I just want to read to you what is revealed that happened there. This is Exodus 1, verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. 
So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Is that from Moana? <laughs> Isn't there a Pua in Moana? No? Thank you. Yes, sure. Let's go back. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live, which is incredible. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Incredible, tragic story, right? Out of fear, fear of loss of control, loss of power, threatened by another nation, Pharaoh doesn't take any chances. He doesn't care about the losses. So he wants to blot out the purebred Israelites once and for all. But if you know the story, one was born who, out of this tragedy and preserved in Moses, who would later come and rescue his people. Well, some of you probably grew up with this hearing the story, right? Very familiar. Some of those details maybe get lost in there, right? But we know this well. We don't really have to be reminded. Now imagine you're Jewish. This story is something you don't even have to try to remember. This is burned into your ancestral memory, right? That your very heritage of existence includes this tragic story. So you can imagine the people, primarily Jewish at first, in Matthew's day, you can imagine their reaction upon hearing or reading Matthew's account of Jesus when he writes this back in our passage of Jesus' birth, about this small family fled to Egypt to find refuge, and this is Herod's reaction. This is Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Is this not Pharaoh all over again? Right, Egypt all over again. Except and I would argue a little worse because it's happening in their own nation by their own supposed leader. It was one thing for Pharaoh way back in the day to be scared by this other nation, but now in their very own land of Judea, not foreigners, they're being treated just like they were back in Egypt. So Herod learned from the wise men who had traveled that Jesus had been born and, for, and, and alive for some time in the last two-ish years, according to the stars, the position of the stars. So he, he, like Pharaoh, just hedged all his bets and went after all 
the two-year-olds and younger. Such a repeat and a horrific tragedy. But again, remember Matthew's audience in the time of writing this. How many of them had maybe had <coughs> their son ripped from them and killed? How many of them do you think they, they wondered why that happened so many years ago? Or they had grandparents that went through something like this. Isn't that a large part of suffering, not knowing the why? Right? Why is this happening to me? What did we do to deserve this? You can imagine the people. It's not like news today where a tragedy happens and you can say, why is this happening? And maybe there's a news article written. Maybe there's a reason, right? Sometimes there's not and tragedy happens. For them, no idea. They might not even have any clues because of baby Jesus. They just knew the loss and the suffering. Well, Matthew is writing the why. Because Jesus, the true king, was born and the darkness hated it. As this most definitely brought up grief for people, this also brings up a nod to what's happening on the big picture. Back in Exodus, prior to the killing of all the Hebrew babies, Pharaoh, what did he do? He enslaved Israel. In Matthew's story, the people of God were living actually in a state of peace, comfort, and complacency under Rome and their leader in Herod, but they were no less slaves to the powerful grip of corruption, greed, and sin. Herod, in a lot of historical writings, was actually a successful king. Although getting his position by ruthlessness and violence, which Rome loved and, and gave him that title, and a lot of Jews hated him for it, actually ruled in a time of peace and prosperity for Judea. He built fortresses, aqueducts, theaters, roads, and in general raised, prop, uh, um, like raised the prosperity in the land. So regardless of how the people felt about them, how much more disheartening is it to have their own king betray them and rip from them the joy of their little one out of their own jealousy and fear? Can you imagine the shock the utter betrayal. Sure, many of us can. But underneath all of that apparent peace and prosperity, there was darkness. And the thing that's consistent with Jesus, even as a baby, he hasn't taught a single thing yet. He will root out the darkness because he is the light. The darkness hates this and tries to cover it up, but it can't. I love how the gospel writer in John puts it, John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Both Egypt's stories are ripe with God's people, fallen victim to those in positions of power who fell into the seductive and destructive power of sin. But both stories are also about God redeeming his people out of the tragedy of hardship. This is a retelling of the story of God's redemption, but now through the perfect story of Jesus Christ. In Pharaoh's story, he slaughtered innocents, which is a great tragedy, and we should feel that heaviness, and we should be sad about that. But Moses was preserved, who would later come back and be a pivotal role in the deliverance and freedom for God's people. In Herod's story, he slaughtered innocents which is a tragedy, and we should feel that heaviness and that sadness. But Jesus has come, was preserved, to come back later and deliver and free God's people, not just then, but forever 
more from any and all future Egypts, Babylons, Romes, and you name it. In the story of Jesus, God is once again bringing his people, represented fully by his son, out of captivity and exile from the kingdoms of this world, but also to save his people from their own sins, not just circumstances, and liberate them once and for all from the kingdom of darkness. God is redeeming for himself through Jesus once and for all a people where he would be their God and his law through his spirit would be on their hearts forevermore. Jesus, before he ever teaches a word, is already completing the story of Israel, thus fulfilling what the law and prophets were always working towards. The first Egypt story was redemption through a people who would later turn from God and do as they saw fit. But this Egypt story of Jesus is one of redemption through the Son of God who will save his people from their sins and make them right with God once more. And this is why the the powerful ending for Matthew to end with the quote here from Jeremiah 31 is so profound. Chapter 2, verse 17 of Matthew. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, if you go with me, one more time into, into nerd town. Each time we get an Old Testament quote here, especially a prophetic one, we need to know its context to get the proper weight. Why, of all the things, did Matthew include this here? Why is he writing about this? Okay, Jeremiah was one of the main prophets who lived through and saw Israel turn from God to their idols and in punishment be conquered and exiled years and years ago by, by Babylon. Okay, remember, another archetype for this kind of worldly kingdom, much like Egypt. But smack dab in the middle of all this depressing stuff in Jeremiah, if you go and read it, right, there's warnings against Babylon, and then there's the judgment of Babylon, and there's a section of Jeremiah from where there's this glimmer of hope amidst the tragedy. Jeremiah 30, chapters 30 through 33, if you go read that, it's just like right, glaringly right in the middle. Chapters 30 to 33 of Jeremiah, surprisingly hopeful about Israel's future. Jeremiah continues the vision that although although Israel disobeyed, instead of abandoning his people, God would again one day redeem his people. And instead of just give them a new law, he was going to actually write the law on their hearts. This is what he has to say about that day. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant... I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God wants to fully heal the hearts of his people so that they would one day on this earth follow him completely. But right before this writing of a renewed covenant, Jeremiah has this quote for the people that are in exile in God, in the suffering, in the tragedy. This is Jeremiah 31, starting in 13. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. It's positive, right? But then, verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, 
lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Not as positive. And then verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your ears from tears, or eyes from tears. (laughs) I wanted to rhyme there. From your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So for Jeremiah, this kind of back and forth saying, hey, yeah, it's, it's really, there's hope. It's, it's good. And I will turn their mourning into joy, but there is still suffering in this life. There's very real hurt and pain happening. And God's promise is not to just remove that pain, but it's to make the pain all mean something someday. But Jeremiah did not come up with that quote. Rachel is one of the prominent ancestral mothers of the Israelite people. And if you remember her story, Rachel was one of Jacob's wives. The other was Leah, ring a bell, right? Who was, and Rachel was barren until God allowed her to become pregnant, and she had Joseph, who we talked about earlier, and then his younger brother, Benjamin. However, as she was having Benjamin, she ended up dying in childbirth. As her children complete the 12 tribes of Israel, thus preserving the nation of Israel, she becomes one of the main mothers, if you will, of the whole nation. See, the story of God's people, as, he, as, as uh, Matthew is writing about Jeremiah, about bringing Rachel into this context, the story of God's people is that like a mother constantly losing her children. Right? The caring, loving, self-sacrificing nature of a mother in the character of God who would and does everything and anything for his children, but they keep running from him and end up being taken from him over and over again. In Matthew, it's no different. The reality of Jesus is that in him, being here shakes the earthly kingdoms to their core. And the problem with darkness is that it has this insatiable desire to smother out any light. But what do we know to be true? The light has come and the darkness will not overcome it. So listen, we talked about a lot of things. There's a ton of hyperlinks, a ton of back and forth of all that. And if you didn't follow any of that, what I'm trying to get us to see, and I think what Matthew is doing, is telling a story, not just telling a story about a boy named Jesus who would one day become the Messiah. I think Matthew's revealing way before the cross, way before the resurrection, that Jesus is right now, the moment he was born, the fulfillment of and is in the truest sense what it means to be the Son of God, the true Israel. As we saw, Israel was God's firstborn son, but failed to fulfill the role and be a blessing to all the nations. Now Jesus has taken on the mantle fully and completely. And as we hear his story unfold, we'll continue to see how he perfectly does what evidently no humans could do before him. So on a 30,000-foot view in biblical theology, Matthew has taken us as readers and hearers from Genesis to Jeremiah to to Jesus to see more clearly what God is doing here. God has given his people a light that the darkness will not be able to consume. It is here. It is the Christ. It is Jesus. And you can see that in just a few paragraphs of Matthew's gospel, there's already so much richness to his life and implications of Jesus, right? But what we have to reconcile with today 
is our acknowledgement that Jesus is the one who is the redeeming or redemption of the story. Just like every Israelite could not save themselves or become the righteousness of God in their own story, we can't either. The only way to see the Savior clearly is to see the clear need for a Savior. And we all can identify with the pain of those families in Matthew 2, right? Losing their children. We feel that on a human level. We can identify with that horrific tragedy. Some of us have tragic stories that mirror that sense of loss and pain. We can turn on the TV for 20 seconds or look at a news article for, for a minute and learn of some other part of the world that's in chaos with darkness and death all around it. There's always Egypt's and Babylon's or something that is trying to enslave and consume God's people. But Christ has come to free his people from ever having to want anything other than God again. God already defeated the Pharaoh. God already showed the freedom he has for his people. And we've seen a plethora of ways that the darkness has tried to fight it. There is pain, there is sadness, there is loss. But like all those hyperlinked prophecies found complete in Jesus, there's also a light that cannot be extinguished. Church, do we believe that we have a Savior who can overcome the darkness today? Do we believe that with our hearts? When we worship today, can you feel and believe the breaking through of whatever wants to enslave you? Over and over again in our scriptures, God reminds his people that he is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And I believe that's repeated over and over because we often forget. One last thing I want to share. Our, our hope is that today, for much of us, and many of us, this is kind of like a Sabbath rest, whether you know much about Sabbath or not, but it's a day set apart to, to worship and to recompass and to say, I've, I've worked hard, I've lived my life, but there's ways that I've strayed from God. And today in my community through worship, I want to recenter and re-be with my God to rest and delight and worship in God together as a community. But even in that Sabbath-like worship today, there is a remembrance, okay? And I want to bring us there in a second when we respond. When Moses speaks again of the great commandments to the next generation of Israelites in Deuteronomy, before entering the promised land, he relays this reason from God himself of why they are to keep the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5.15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The constant reminder for us when we go to worship today to remember, remember at one point you were enslaved, right? At one point sin was the master, right? At one point the world was the gospel, everything out there but then God revealed himself to us, right? Christ was born to us. The Savior came to us. And on this day, this set-apart day, holy day of recompassing to God in our worship, can we announce that that same power and reality of deliverance is true today? Can we do that? Through song, through giving away, what does our world tell us about our money? To keep it, Right? but to give it away to the community? Was it tell us about our speech and our language and what we should adhere to, right? To like keep it for yourself, 
Praise yourself. Glorify yourself. How about we sing praises of God? We sing of the deliverance of that, right? To receive communion, to go to the bread and the cup. When Jesus looked at his disciples later on in the story, he says, you're not going to understand this except for one day. You'll get this. But right now, this bread is like my body and it's broken for you, but I'm giving it to you. This, this blood, this cup of, of wine at the time, grape, grape juice for us, right, is like my blood spilled. That's going to wash you clean. When we partake of communion, can we remember and can we declare that he is the God, the Lord, who brought us out of Egypt? Amen.